0: Good afternoon, beloved. Good afternoon, come on. Good afternoon. We're continuing in worship. Amen? Amen. Amen. And I'm going to ask you to stand, please, as we read God's Holy Word. If you will, if you have a digital device, navigate to Matthew 19. We'll be reading from verse 16 through 30. Your pew Bibles, that is page 20. amen amen Amen. let us worship god through the reading of his word and behold a man came up to him saying teacher what good deed must i do to have eternal life and he said to him why do you ask me about what is good there is only one who is good if you would enter life keep the commandments he said to him which ones And jesus said you shall not murder you shall not commit adultery you shall not steal you shall not bear false witness honor your father and mother you shall love your neighbor as yourself the young man said to him all these i have kept what do i lack jesus said to him if you would be perfect go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had many possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of god when the disciples heard this they were greatly astonished saying who then can be saved but jesus looked at them and said with man this is impossible but with god all things are possible then peter said in reply see we have left everything and followed you What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father or mother, or children or lands, for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last will be first this is god's word amen church good afternoon it's a
1: joy to be here let's let's pray and ask for god's blessing before we look to him and his word heavenly father Thank you for your love. You didn't spare your own son, but gave him up for us all. So how can you not, along with him, graciously give us all things? And Jesus, thank you for choosing to lay down your life for us. Help us to obey you. Help us to love you. Help us to treasure you above everything else. Give us ears to hear by your Spirit as you speak to your people this afternoon. Help us to respond with faith and to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Andrew Carnegie, when he was 33 years old, became one of the richest men on earth. He built an entire financial empire on the steel industry, and he wrote this when he was 33. Man must have an idol. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. To continue much longer, overwhelmed by business cares, and with most of my thoughts on the way to make more money in the shortest time must degrade me beyond hope. I will resign business at 35." Well, Carnegie didn't resign business two years later when he turned 35, but he continued working and continued working, not just two years, not 20 years, but another 33 years. When he turned 66, he cashed out his financial empire and sold his whole company to J.P. Morgan. Sadly, Carnegie gave his life to the very thing he didn't want to the pursuit of money. One steelworker said, we didn't want Carnegie to build a library for us. We would have rather have had higher wages. Steel workers worked on factory floors on 12-hour shifts, on floors that were so hot they had to nail wooden platforms on their shoes. These workers, the best housing they could afford was crowded and filthy. Most steel workers died in their 40s or earlier because of accidents or diseases. It's stunning that Carnegie saw that his pursuit of money could become an idol. But he couldn't do anything about it. He was trapped. He was ensnared. He was stuck. But this idolatry of money is nothing new. Money with all of its power and privileges, all the benefits that it can bring, the love of that money can blind you to reality. The reality of who God is and the reality of his image bearers, human beings created in the image of God. The love of money can so easily consume someone with just a desire for more and more and more and more of everything money has to offer. Today, King Jesus, in teaching us some universal and timeless truths, is giving us a choice. It's giving each one of us a choice as to what to do with our life, what to do with our love. To follow Jesus, give up everything this world has to offer to gain everything heaven has to offer. To follow Jesus, give up everything this world has to offer, to gain everything heaven has to offer. If you're new to us, we're in a sermon series on the Gospel of Matthew. Last week, Pastor Rick preached a fantastic sermon on what it means to have a faith, to have faith like a child. The kingdom of heaven is not for the strong, the powerful, the wise, the wealthy. The kingdom of God is for those who are weak and dependent. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. And now we're going to see Jesus interact with someone who is the exact opposite of a weak and dependent child, a rich young ruler. So if you don't already have your Bibles open, let's look at Matthew 19, starting at verse 16 and 17. Please follow along in your Bibles or your device. Matthew 19, verses 16 and 17. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. So we have here a young man, probably between the ages of 24 and 40, an Andrew Carnegie of his day, a man who is rich, a man who has money and everything that money could possibly buy. He could buy security, comfort, and power, everything this world has to offer. And this man comes to Jesus as a seeker. He comes to him calling him teacher, and he's interested in eternal life. Now notice what Jesus doesn't say. He didn't say wow you're eager you bring a lot to the table why don't you be one of my disciples i'm sure you could take my ministry to the next level in fact he corrects this young man this prospective disciple he says well why do you ask me about what is good there is only one who is good in other words he tells this rich young ruler you don't know who you're talking to you're looking face to face with god himself the very definition of good this is what Pastor Joel Beeke writes about the goodness of God. God, he, is not goodness relatively as compared to badness, for he cannot be compared to anything or anyone. He is pure good, essential good, absolute good, infinite good, perfect good. His goodness is sufficient, all-sufficient, self-sufficient. So this young man coming face to face with the very definition of good, God himself asks, what's good enough? What do I have to do to get to heaven? And Jesus points this potential disciple back to God, the very definition of good, and says, keep the commandments. In other words, God, being the very definition of good, go to what he said, go to his commandments, his word. What has he already revealed in his word? Let's continue in verses 18 and 19. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The rich young ruler proves to be a a seeker. He wants to be more precise. He asks Jesus, which ones? There's a lot of commands. There's a lot of law there. And so Jesus opens up his answer with the Ten Commandments. Starts off with number six, you shall not steal. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Uh, sorry, number, uh, number six, you shall not murder. And number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not lie. And then jumps back to number five, honor your father and mother. And then Jesus throws out a a summary of the the last six of the horizontal commandments. The commandments that deal with our relationship with other people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Before we move on too quickly, we need to ask ourselves, we need to pause and ask, well, what did Jesus leave out? There's ten commandments. He only gave us five. Well, Jesus left off the first four commandments, those vertical commandments that deal with our relationship with God. And then he also left off the last commandment, you shall not covet. Seems like Jesus could have been testing this young man to see if he really knew the word of God. If he really knew God's law. Because if he did, maybe he would have said, "Hey, but Jesus, you left out the most important commandment of all, the Shema that we heard about last week. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, let's look at what he says in verse 20. Verse 20, the young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? So this young man, probably with a straight face, Tells Jesus that he honestly believes that he has kept all these commandments that Jesus has just listed out. But notice what, Jesus, what, what, what this man says after all these I have kept. What does he say after all these I have kept? He says, what do I still lack? What do I still lack? So he might think that he's kept these commandments. These horizontal commandments that Jesus has laid out. But deep down inside, he knows he doesn't measure up. There's something lacking. He isn't quite good enough to measure up to God's standard. He knows that deep down inside. And we know from Romans chapter 3, verse 20, the purpose of God's law. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We see, the purpose of God's law is to bring knowledge of sin. So this rich young ruler, he completely missed the purpose of God's law, which is to bring knowledge of sin. He was using the law as a checklist to try to prove that he was righteous. He was thinking through the commandments, checking that one. Okay, I kept this one. I kept that one. I kept this one. But deep down inside, he knew he lacked something. At this moment, I might have expected, you might have expected Jesus to bust out with a Sermon on the Mount, right? He might have said, oh, you think you've kept the commandments. Well, let me refer you to Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Well, you think you've never murdered anybody. Well, have you ever gotten angry? That's murder in your heart. Well, you think you've never committed adultery. Well, have you ever lusted after someone? That's adultery in your heart. Well, you think you've never stolen, but... Have you always been thankful and content with what God has given you? But that's not how Jesus responds. Jesus doesn't argue with the rich young ruler on these horizontal commandments. In fact, he skips right to the heart of the matter, right to the heart of the issue. Let's look at verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And come, follow me. This Greek word for perfect means complete. It means to complete what's lacking. It's the rich young ruler. He knew he was lacking something. So if he wanted to be complete, this is what Jesus offered him as the solution. Jesus tells him to sell what he has sell everything, give to the poor, gain treasure in heaven, and then come, follow me. So this rich young ruler was asking Jesus, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus responds by saying, it's not what you do, it's who you have. It's who you have. That's why he said, come, follow me. And this call of King Jesus to come and follow It's nothing new. We've we've seen this all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. We've seen this as a pattern. In chapter 4, Jesus goes to Peter and Andrew and says, follow me. And these two fishermen, they leave their boats, their nets, their co-workers. They get up and follow Jesus. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus goes to Matthew, the tax collector, and says, follow me. Matthew, the tax collector, gets up from his tax booth leaves the money on the table, leaves his co-workers, leaves his post, leaves his job, and follows Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 26, we see this universal call of Jesus. If anyone, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? This command that Jesus gives to the rich young ruler isn't so much sell and give away to the poor, but sell and give away to the poor so that, so that you can come follow me. This young man, his love of his money was getting in the way of him following Jesus. This, his love of money was like an anchor sunk deep into the ocean floor that was keeping him from setting sail to freedom and joy and eternal life in Christ. This love of money was like a, a force of gravity that was keeping him tied down to the things of this world when his soul should be able to rise up to the glories of heaven. And that's the point Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, that we have a choice to make. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You have to choose. And Jesus is telling this rich young ruler, You can't serve God and money. You love one and hate the other, you're devoted to the one or despise the other. You can't have both. Your primary love, your primary affection has to go only one place. Let's see how he responds in verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So coming face to face with the call to follow Jesus, this young man chose to serve money and not Jesus. He chose to be a slave of money and not Jesus. He was enslaved to his money because he couldn't give it up. He couldn't give it up so that he could devote his life to Jesus. And it's tragic. We see this young man value the gift over the giver, valuing creation over the creator, valuing a dead idol over the living God. The Dutch theologian Herman Babing puts it this way, the magnitude The magnitude of the love, grace, and mercy revealed in the gospel, the glory of Christ's person and the perfection of his work, the sufficiency of Christ for all our needs, all combine to make rejection an iniquity of incomparable gravity. Christ offers himself in the glory of his person in the fullness of His grace, in the perfection of His finished work. So the glory demands the response of total commitment. So the glory demands the response of total commitment. So this rich young ruler coming face to face with the Son of God, with all of His glory, all of His grace, all of His person and work, he says, thanks, but no thanks. I'll take my money instead this rejection is an iniquity. It's an evil of incomparable gravity. What does Bhavik mean by that? Well, what he means is that that there's no greater evil than the rejection of one who is absolute good, infinite good, perfect good. No greater evil than choosing to devote your life to a dead idol over the living God. No greater evil than choosing cash over Christ and choosing the pleasures of this world over the glories of heaven. This young man has come face to face with Jesus, has come so close to eternal life, and yet is so far. And it reminds us, church, that people can be interested But it's not enough to be a seeker, not enough to be interested. The rich young ruler walked away. It's not enough to be religious. Look at the Pharisees. It's not enough to be around Jesus, to be in ministry, or to be around the disciples of Jesus. Just look at Judas. And yet the glory of Christ demands the response of total commitment. That's what it means to be a disciple. There's this response of total commitment. That means if Christ isn't on the throne, then something or someone else is on the throne, it commands our highest loyalty, our highest love. Maybe you're here this afternoon and you're not sure about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You're interested, you're here, and we're grateful for that. But you need to know something very important. You need to know that the greatest needs that you have are things that money can't buy. Money can't buy forgiveness of sins, peace with God, eternal life, a place with God in heaven. Money can buy none of those things. And deep down inside, you know you've done things that you shouldn't have done. You've said things. You've thought things that you wish you could erase. You wish no one would ever know. And you might carry around a sense of shame At your life. Or maybe you carry around a sense of guilt. The Ten Commandments verify that guilt that you might feel deep down inside because you know you've sinned against a God who is perfect and holy and absolutely good in all of his powers and perfections. A God so holy he considers hatred to be the same as murder. Lust to be equivalent to adultery within the heart. A God who only speaks truth and expects us to only speak the truth. And most of all, as people, as creatures, as people who are made by God, we owe our allegiance to our Creator, the one who has made us, the one who has sustained us, the one who has given us everything we enjoy. And yet, by our sinful nature, we have chosen the creation over the Creator. We've chosen to serve ourselves over to serve Almighty God, the one who has made you and sustains you. So you have a choice. To follow Jesus, give up everything this world has to offer to gain everything heaven has to offer. And Jesus, he made a way for you to come to him. Jesus Christ took on human flesh. He was born as a baby in Bethlehem. He lived a perfect sinless life. And none of us could live. Keeping all of God's commandments. So that he could ransom. So he could rescue us. Not with perishable things such as gold, silver, and money. But ransom us with his own blood. On the cross, Jesus Christ died to suffer the penalty for breaking the commandments. All the penalty, all the wrath, all the judgment that you and I deserve for falling short of keeping God's holy law. Jesus paid it all on the cross. So if you walk away from Jesus, you're trading away your only hope on the day of judgment. So surrender your life to Jesus today. Come to Him. Repent. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from being on the throne of your life. And surrender your life to King Jesus. Trust in Him with everything you've got. But this call of Jesus, this call to give up everything this world has to offer, to gain everything heaven has to offer, this call of King Jesus is for us, for those of us who consider ourselves as his disciples. We need to remember that people like Carnegie and this rich young ruler, they were blinded by their love of money. They fell into the trap of the love of money and they didn't even realize it. So this calls for each one of us for careful soul searching, for careful self-examination, for examining our own hearts, our own lives, for us to examine our bank statement, to examine your credit card statement, to examine your calendar, to examine how you use money. The question for you and I is this, how do those things your bank statement, your credit card statement, how you use your money. How do those, what do those things say about what you value most? The way we use money is an indicator of our heart. It tells us what we value most, whether it's the comforts and pleasures of this world, the security that money has to offer, or Christ. The question for you and for me is, is there anything that we're unwilling to give up? Is it your money, your retirement savings, your home, your job, anything? The evangelist John Wesley, when he was told that his house was destroyed by fire, said, the Lord's house burned down. That's one less responsibility for me to worry about. Would you be able to say with Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord? Even if the Lord takes away your children, your wealth, your health. One pastor has observed that Scripture gives us 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 verses on faith, but over 2,000 verses on money. There's 2,000 verses in the Bible that speak directly to money. That's four times as many verses that talk about faith, four times as many verses that talk about prayer, which tells us money matters to God. Money matters. That means the day of judgment is the day that King Jesus asks each one of us, what did you do with my money? To whom much is given, much is expected. Donald Gowan writes this. People always take priority over prosperity. Those in positions of power have no increased privilege, only increased responsibility. No increased privilege, only increased responsibility. That makes sense because we know that we're all accountable to King Jesus one day. And most of us here in the United States, we've been given a measure of power and prosperity relative to most other people in this world. So that means each one of us sitting in here, most of us sitting here, we don't have increased privilege, but only increased responsibility. It's the question for you and for me. Are we prepared to meet King Jesus when he reviews his accounts with you? Because the way you use money shows whether you value money in everything the world has to offer or you value Christ in everything heaven has to offer. And if you knew you were going to meet King Jesus today, this afternoon, tonight, would that change the way you spend your money, the way you save, the way you give? If so, make those changes today. John Piper writes about having this vision of Christ that drives everything in life, especially how we deal with money. Does the all-satisfying beauty of Christ have the gravitational weight at the center of your life to control not only the orbit of giving, but also the orbits of spending and selling and trading and investing and setting salaries? and paying taxes, and creating businesses, and shaping trade laws, and governmental policies. In short, is God our supreme treasure? Is God our supreme treasure? The way you use your money will reveal what or who is your supreme treasure. For the rich young ruler, for Carnegie, the answer was no. But for the true disciple of Jesus Christ, the way we use our money is a resounding yes that yes, money is a good gift. It allows us to support our families, to help others, to provide for our own needs. But God is infinitely better, infinitely more glorious. For the true disciple, Jesus is so valuable, so precious, that we would rather part with everything in life so that we could have Jesus. Remember Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven, is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man stumbles upon him, when he discovers this treasure in this field, in his joy, he sells all that he has so that he can have that field, so he can have that treasure. He must have it. He does whatever it takes to have that treasure. Is Jesus your treasure? Is Jesus your treasure? Is Jesus his person, his work, his word, his law, his love? Are those things precious to you? You're a disciple. They are. To follow Jesus, give up everything this world has to offer, to gain everything heaven has to offer. Now, a question that many of us have when we come to a passage like this is, is Jesus calling all of us to sell everything? Is Jesus calling all of us here to sell everything? Well, in Scripture, God has called different people to give up different things. Things. Zacchaeus voluntarily gave up half of his wealth to the poor. That was clearly less than everything. But Abraham was commanded by God to give up his son, Isaac. His son, the, his only son, the son that he loved, his special beloved son, Isaac. That was clearly much more than all his worldly possessions. And we see everything in between you and I, we might be tempted to breathe a sigh of relief thinking, well, well, Jesus didn't call everybody to sell everything, but not so fast. Robert Gundry puts it this way, that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command.
0: So what Gundry is saying is,
1: if you're the kind of person might think, well, Jesus didn't give this command, this command to sell everything to everybody. If you're the kind of person to take comfort from that, well, you're the kind of person to whom Jesus would issue that kind of command. That's intended to make us all uncomfortable. It's intended to cause us to do some soul searching. To cause us to do some self-examination. Let's move on. As Jesus teaches his disciples after the rich young ruler has walked away, verses 23 through 26. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. We see some extreme images Jesus is using here. The eye of the needle is probably one of the smallest holes visible to the naked eye. The eye of the needle means exactly that, an eye of the needle. It doesn't, it's not a metaphor referring to some small gate. It's an eye of the needle. And a fully loaded camel would have required a gate that was 10 feet by 12 feet, a 10 by 12 foot gate. So what Jesus is saying is that it's easier for one of those things to go through an eye of the needle than for a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And the point Jesus makes is that our sinful hearts can get so easily ensnared by the love of money. Our sinful hearts can get so easily ensnared by taking a good gift and changing it to a terrible God. Our sinful hearts can so easily fall into the trap of the love of money and into pride, into self-sufficiency, and begin to think, well, who needs God? I've got money. I've got everything I need to solve all my problems. And Jesus' response surprises the disciples. Surprises them because they ask, well, who then can be saved? Jesus has just shaken one of their bedrock assumptions about the kingdom of heaven. You see, in first century Judaism, wealth was a sign of God's favor. If you were rich, that meant God liked you. He blessed you. He was favoring you. And so the disciples are saying, well, if the rich aren't automatically in the kingdom of heaven, well, and those are the favored ones, those are the blessed ones, well, well, who has any hope? What's impossible with man is possible with God. And Jesus turns the tables on them and, and tells them that, well, riches... While they are a blessing, they can be a blessing, they can be the very thing that keeps you out of the kingdom of God because your heart is tied to them, because your heart loves it so much. Jesus is teaching here that salvation is 100% grace. It's not something you can buy, not something you can earn, nothing you can work out through your own human effort. He teaches us that salvation is a, a free gift from a sovereign Lord. A Lord who has the right to choose some to be saved, but passes over others. And he has the right to do that because he is God. He is creator. He is Lord. He has the right to do whatever he wants in heaven and on earth. And if you're a disciple here, you know that to be true. You know that he is Lord and he is God over all. And you also know that it takes a supernatural gift of faith to respond to the call of Jesus to be able to give up everything this world has to offer, to gain everything heaven has to offer. The rich young ruler, when he was asked to set aside his money so that he could follow Jesus, that request didn't make any sense to him. It doesn't make any sense to most of the people in this world. It doesn't make sense to place your hope your future, your money, your life, your eternal destiny into a first century Jewish rabbi. It doesn't make sense unless, unless the Holy Spirit has worked powerfully in your life and you have begun to see the value, the glory, the worth, the love of Jesus Christ and how he is worth it. If you're a disciple, you know Jesus. You know he's worth it you gladly give up everything, even your own life, for Jesus. Let's see how the disciples respond in verses 27 through 30, the last part of our passage. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you have repented of your sins, if you are trusting in Christ alone, if you are placing all of your hope in Jesus Christ, Jesus wants you to know that everything heaven has to offer can't even begin to compare with everything this world has to offer. Which means whatever you've given up for Jesus, whether it's houses or family, a pay raise because you're choosing to be a man or woman of integrity, well, whatever you've given up you're going to gain a hundred times as much and eternal life that means a life of discipleship is a life of exchange we as disciples of christ we exchange sin and death living in our own way for righteousness and life in jesus christ we exchange the false gods of this world for the true god who rules and reigns in heaven we exchange everything this earth has to offer to gain everything heaven has to offer. And lest we become proud, oh, look at me, look at the sacrifices I've made for King Jesus. Lest we become proud, Jesus reminds us, reminds His disciples to be humble. The disciples who ask, well, we've given up everything to follow you, what will we have? Well, he reminds them that many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. We bring things to a close here. We have to ask ourselves where do we go from here? Most of you sitting here are following Jesus. You want to center your life around Him. Most of you want to give up everything this world has to offer to gain everything heaven has to offer. I want to give you a couple of things to consider. Some some couple practical steps. First, if you are a disciple of Christ, make sure you tithe. Make sure you tithe. Though there are some exceptions, there are some exceptions. For most of us here in this room, giving a tithe, 10% of our income to the ministry of this local church, is the place to begin, if you're not already doing that. Sadly, statistics show that professing Christians give, in the United States, professing Christians give only 2.4% of their income away which means there's no discernible difference between Christians and non-Christians and how they use their money. Now we know there's a difference between professing Christians and true disciples of Christ. But this is a helpful and important statistic for us to think about. Which means if your discipleship to King Jesus doesn't affect the way you spend your money, doesn't affect the way you live your life, doesn't affect you Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, it's not. It's not. Discipleship. We'd like to view the tithe, giving 10% of your income, as, as training wheels that set you off in the right direction. A life of wholehearted devotion and love to King Jesus. Second, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, don't be content with the tithe. Don't be content. Old Testament believers, they tithe. They were clear Old Testament commands clear Mosaic laws which required the people of God to tithe. But let's not settle there as disciples of Jesus Christ. Tim Keller encourages us onward. He writes this, Have we received more of God's revelation, truth, and grace than the Old Testament believers, or less? Are we more debtors to grace than they were, or less? Did Jesus tithe his life and blood to save us, or did he give it all? Tithing is a minimum standard for Christian believers. We wouldn't want to be in a position of giving away less of our income than those who had so much less of an understanding of what God did to save them. Church, we want all of you to be aware that all of your pastors we, we do give more than a tithe of our income. Each of us gives at least 10% of our income to this local church body, and then even beyond that, whether it's the church planting, the covenant mercies, and to other opportunities for mission and mercy. And we don't say that to draw attention to ourselves, but we, we know that before God, we have a responsibility to lead by example. So when we call you to give at least 10% of your income to kingdom work, we want you to know that that's what we do ourselves. And we do so cheerfully and faithfully. Third, if you haven't already read this book, The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn, maybe some of you have picked this up before. Maybe you've already read it. It's so fantastic. We've given this book away. Uh, if it's sitting on your shelf, I to, we just want to encourage you to, to pick it up. It's a brief book, only about 150 pages. To, to take this book, read it. Maybe read it with your spouse. Read it with your community group, people in your community group, and pray through it. This book, Treasure Principle, will encourage and challenge you to have an eternal perspective when it comes to God's money. So, church, Jesus lays out for us this vision. There are two different ways to live there's a way of treasuring Him above everything else. And there's a way of treasuring money and the things of this world. And church, we want you to know, Jesus wants us to know that there are eternal rewards, eternal riches, eternal glory and honor waiting for those who choose to treasure Christ more than anything this world has to offer. There's eternal glory, eternal reward waiting for you. So don't shortchange yourself. Choose Christ. Choose this day whom you will serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're just aware that what is impossible with man is possible with you. It's impossible for any of us to live out these principles that we just heard about. It's impossible for us to do this on our own. It's impossible for us to treasure Jesus like we know we need to. So we ask, Father, for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Spirit, change us. Give us fresh eyes of faith to see the glory, the wonder, the beauty, the majesty, the love of Jesus Christ. And may that lead us to generosity. May that lead us to treasure Christ above everything else. And demonstrate that treasuring through the way we use our money. I pray for each member of our church here, God, that they would choose to store up for themselves treasures in heaven. Not treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but treasures in heaven. I pray that you would give us the grace to treasure Christ more this week, to treasure Christ more and more each day you give us to live on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen.